Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What defines a presidency? Over the course of the nation's 243-year history, there have been 44 men who've held the office. And when we look back, it's often the big moments that shape the narrative. Some stories we learn immediately. Other stories take years to come out. For some presidents, like George W. Bush, a single event can drive eight years of governance. And here's one story from Bush's first chief of staff, Andy Card. I greeted the president, and he was up and at him, and he was preoccupied, completely preoccupied, with the run that he was going to take on the golf course. I remember saying, when you get back from the run, it'll be an easy day. It's your favorite topic, leaving no child behind in education. We have our briefing with the CIA briefer. Nothing was memorable in that briefing. I did hear two people, Carl Rove and Dan Bartlett, say, anybody hear about a plane crash in New York City? That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And then I walked into the holding room, and I'm standing at the door to the classroom where the president's going to go from that holding room into a classroom. And I'm standing with the principal of the school and the president, when a Navy captain by the name of Deb Lauer, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip, she came up to the president and said, Sir, it appears a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. The president, the principal, and I all had the same reaction. Oh, what a horrible accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. And that was a nanosecond because the principal opened the door to the classroom and she and the president walked into the classroom. Great reading. Very impressive. Thank you also very much for showing me your reading skills. The door shuts. I'm still in the holding room. When Captain Lauer comes up to me and says, Sir, it appears it was not a small twin-engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner. And then again, A nanosecond later, Captain Lauer comes up to me and says, Oh my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. We just saw another plane coming in from the side. Then I performed a test the chiefs of staff have to perform all the time, every day. Does the president need to know? Easy test to pass, yes. I made a conscious decision to say two facts to him and to do nothing to invite a question or start a dialogue with the president because I assumed he was sitting under a boom microphone in front of the press pool and second graders. I opened the door to the classroom. When I stepped in, the president did not see me. I came in from behind him. The door shut and the teacher sitting in front of the second graders, was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. Ready? Yes. Sound it out. Get ready. Sound it out. Get ready. And then the teacher told the students to take out their books because they were going to read with the president, my pet goat. I took that as a chance to go up and talk to the president. I leaned over and I whispered into his right ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. I then stood back from him. He never turned around, never looked at me. I could see his head bobbing up and down. I stood a second or so watching that. When he didn't get up, I was pleased. I could see the second graders, all excited with their books, opened on their desk, ready to read with the president. 
And then I walked into the holding room, and the first thing I said was, get the FBI director on the phone, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House Situation Room, get the crew back on Air Force One, we're going to have to leave. And then to Dan Bartlett, the communications director on the trip, I said, we need some remarks written for the people in the gymnasium. We've got 600 people in there. The president will have to tell them something, but he shouldn't say anything we do not know to be the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a difficult moment for America. I, um, unfortunately, will be going back to Washington after my remarks. At that moment, it was clear that President Bush's presidency was headed to a very different place than anyone had imagined when he was campaigning for the job just a year earlier. And here's a different story, this one from Barack Obama's presidency as told by former cabinet member, HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. Working in the Obama administration was my only time being in the White House. So I only have one perspective. One of the more interesting comments was made by Bob Gates at his final cabinet meeting. And by that point, Bob Gates, former Secretary of Defense for President Obama had served six different presidents. He first of all left right after the bin Laden raid and he talked a lot about that and about the president's decision making. I've worked for a lot of these guys and this is one of the most courageous calls, uh, decisions that I think I've ever seen a president make. And he said he asked me two things. Uh, One is how certain are you that bin Laden is there? And Gates said, well, we're not 100% sure, but 60 70%, we think it's him. But he said the second thing that he asked, and he really drilled down on this, is do you have a plan to get the guys out? And Gates went through it with him and said, yes, I do, Mr. President. And he said that was really the most important part of the decision. And the president said to him, look, we're going in, and if we're wrong, it's on me. I take this. I, I want to assure you of that, but you have to get the guys out. After the discussions with the principals, it was clear to me that um, this was going to be our best chance to get bin Laden. The second thing he said, and he looked at all of us, because we were still relatively new in this cabinet, and he said, I've worked for six presidents. I have never seen a president work with a cabinet like this. It's collegial. People are not knifing each other in the back. There are no leaks. We're on a mission together. He said, I am glad I stayed, Mr. President, because I've never worked in an atmosphere like this, and it's about you. The risk uh, to the lives of the Americans involved, uh, it was a very gutsy call. That doesn't mean we didn't disagree with one another, but it was very clear in the Obama administration, you came in, you made your case, and The president would make a decision, and once he made a decision, we're all on the same team. We are not far enough away from the Obama presidency to be able to put it in the same perspective. That will be an ongoing project, as it is for all presidents. I've been thinking a lot about the presidency this week because I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, for the Presidential Ideas Festival, known fondly around here as PresFest, hosted by the University of Virginia's Miller Center. It attracts presidential scholars, former administration officials, journalists, and political junkies. It also included one former president. I think you know this voice. But I think it's really important, you're having this Presidential Ideas Festival, it's really important for you to decide what is the job? What do you expect of the president? What's the president supposed to do? 
few people get the opportunity to work closely with the U.S. president. I was fortunate to be able to interview four of them. Susan Rice. Andy Card. Kathleen Sebelius. Carl Rove. These are some of the very few who have been able to watch how a presidency changes the person who serves in that post and how that person has changed the office. Today on Politics with Amy Walter, we're taking some perspective about the presidency. Getting perspective is hard to do when we are constantly overstimulated as we are now. Our phones buzz with breaking news alerts, our TV screens are filled with panels of partisan commentators telling us that this is the most important, most consequential, most terrible thing that anyone has ever seen. Political reporters and their twitchy Twitter fingers are constantly serving up their hot takes of each and every twist and turn on the campaign trail. And President Trump is participating fully in the process, stirring up chaos and controversy with every tweet. This is not only exhausting, but dangerous. It leaves all of us in a permanent state of anxiety, constantly questioning if we're overreacted to what's really just a banal development or underreacting to a threat that's right in front of our faces. It's also fair to wonder if this is the new normal. And if we are at a tipping point in the presidency or a constitutional crisis, how will we know we are there? To help us answer these questions, we begin with Barbara Perry, the director of presidential studies at UVA's Miller Center. Given all the discussion about the potential for a constitutional crisis, I asked her how she thought the presidency of Richard Nixon, the most recent president to challenge the bounds of the Constitution, fit into all of this. The inflection point about Richard Nixon is really one more about the entire constitutional structure. Because if you think of it, what Richard Nixon did and what he was accused of doing and what he would have been impeached for and convicted and removed from office if the process had played out in the Congress was that each of the three branches, and I would even include the media, which are sometimes referred to as a fourth branch of government, I would say all of them in the constitutional structure that the founders had envisioned it would work, were all working together to come to justice, to find this president to be guilty of these high crimes and misdemeanors, even though, again, the impeachment process didn't carry out because the Supreme Court went to work with the tapes case. Congress went to work with impeachment proceedings underway in the House and in the Senate, the Senate Watergate Committee, and by virtue of what's happening in the media through television coverage and newspaper coverage that everyone knows about through all the president's men, um, you end up with these leaders of the Republican Party who were in the minority, granted they were in the minority in the House and the Senate at that time, they march down to the White House after the Supreme Court issues its ruling against Richard Nixon in the tapes case, and they say, Mr. President, we can't save you. There's no way that you can stay in office. You will be impeached. You will be convicted, you will be removed. So the Constitution and the way that the founders had hoped actually worked. It did. And it's the perfect example. I think it's almost a, while it was horrible for the country to have to go through it, it's a pristine example of the separation of powers and the checks and balances at at this delicate balance working to perfection. Let's fast forward to this time that we're in, where the conventional wisdom, or at least what a lot of people are talking about, is the fact that these checks and balances are no longer in balance. Do you believe that we are in a constitutional crisis at this moment? And if not, what does that look like? I think we are at the cusp of a constitutional crisis. And I say that because 
of the inflection point, the crossroads, whatever term you want to use or metaphor to describe the Donald Trump presidency. It remains to be seen how this crisis will develop and will it become as difficult and as dangerous for the country as Watergate was. And it still remains to be seen whether the delicate balance of separation of powers and checks and balances will work as the founders had hoped. But so far, they are not. I would say for the following reasons. This inflection point or crossroads for Donald Trump is what I'm moving beyond the scholars call the crossroads or they call the constitutional presidency of the formal constitution, then they call it the rhetorical presidency from Woodrow Wilson onward. And I think we may have a third presidency, a third era, and I'm calling it the demagogic presidency because the one thing the founders really feared for a republic is that they knew that it would be brought down. Any republic can be brought down by demagogues. As a historian, as you're grappling with how to put these people into context, here we are trying to figure out, right, well, what is the Obama legacy going to be? But we still can't figure out how to reconcile Jefferson and Madison and the fact they were slaveholders and the fact that Andrew Jackson's treatment of Native Americans was so brutal that Woodrow Wilson was openly racist. So how, how do you do that? Is there a right way to set a president's legacy? Generally, when we look at presidents, we typically are, I always say, we're, we as American people are really good and positive about new presidents typically, although not the incumbent. But you probably know better than I that virtually all presidents since polling started in the modern era from Harry Truman onward get a huge bump forward as they come into office in this honeymoon period. So way more people approve of them than voted for them. And that depends on how long that lasts, but for Trump, didn't, Trump did not get it at all. So that's one difference right there. And then to the legacy question, Americans are usually really good to ex-presidents. And I, I call it the Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye phenomenon because that was a book written about President Kennedy, this gauzy, golden, nostalgic piece by Dave Powers and Ken O'Donnell, who were his two best political friends and aides in the White House. And it, it came from an Irish ballad, a sentimental Irish ballad, Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye, what was lost with his assassination. But Americans were that way about Bush 41, for example. They turned him out of office after only one term. And my colleague Russell Riley points to the fact that within the two months between Bush's defeat and his leaving office, his approval ratings went up 20 points from where he had landed in the popular vote, which was about 36%. He was always already over 50% approval rating as he walked out the door and Bill Clinton took his place. Maybe in some way as sort of a buyer's remorse. Georgie, we hardly knew ye. And, and just look at when he passed recently how people looked back on the heroic George H.W. Bush. So part of it is the passage of time. Now, having said that, the passage of time is also not very kind to certain presidents. Correct. And it has not been for the founders. Um, Harry Truman's another example of those leaving with real low approval ratings and then bounding upward in the 1970s when people contrasted him with Richard Nixon and the music group Chicago had this song called America Needs You, Harry Truman, Harry Won't You Come Back Home. The world is turning round and losing lots of ground.
and his oral history came out at that time. It was called Plain Speaking. So another example of Americans loving an ex-president. But the opposite is happening in the uh, post-civil rights era, in the uh, Me Too movement era, as we look back at the presidents of the founding. Washington, Jefferson, as you mentioned, Madison, Monroe, all slaveholders. Jackson, a slaveholder and Indian removal uh, instigator. A, a genocide of sorts. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who also attended this university, at least for a por portion of his time in law school before he went on for a PhD in political science, uh, an outright racist that we know. Here's how I've come to reconcile this. Uh, and I'm going to borrow this in part from John Meacham, uh, who spoke last night at Monticello to our dinner. He said, let's look back at these founders and what they stood for in a good way. They stood for the rights of man, and I use man because they only thought in terms of rights of white men, but I always used to say about Thomas Jefferson to my students, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Meacham said last night, that's the greatest line in the English language, and he didn't see to it. Jefferson didn't see to it that we fulfilled it in his lifetime, and our country didn't see to it that we fulfilled it for many decades to come. And some would argue we still haven't fulfilled it, but we usually are moving upward towards it. But we could only get there by Thomas Jefferson placing that language into the Declaration of Independence. And we could only come to this amazing constitutional delicate balance by James Madison writing the Constitution and then adding the Bill of Rights to it that become a model for the world. And so I want to look back on them and say, one, they stood for union, they stood for unity, they stood for the rights of man at a time when it wasn't at all clear that that's where the world was moving. So they were men of the Enlightenment, they were also men of their age that had much darker sides. And so that enlightenment is always fighting against the dark. And that's when we look back at historians and judge them, I think sometimes it depends on one's viewpoint. If one goes with their darker side or their light side, I tend to be a, an optimistic person. And I, I tend to be uh, a person whose view has fallen out of disfavor in the academy. And that is, I do see the United States as an exceptional country. We're not perfect. We don't always get it right. In fact, sometimes we get it terribly wrong. But... In the end, I think we are always moving towards the Enlightenment side of the founding rather than the darker side. Barbara Perry, thank you very much. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for being here at the University of Virginia, Mr. Jefferson's University, for our Presidential Ideas Festival on the, at the Miller Center. Now, while on campus at the University of Virginia, we asked people what they viewed as the most important part of the president's job. Well, I think the president should do his or her best to promote equality here and overseas, friendship instead of rancor, to be a leader in this regard. Protect a citizen, her citizens. Protect her citizens and support them with social programs that are funded by our taxes. Be the front man to take all the abuse while everybody else does the job. Yeah, I would say the president is supposed to be a role model for the public. The role of the president is to just keep the train on the tracks as best as it can and to set a good example for the rest of the people. I don't think there would be any discipline around what I did on September 11th if it happened 
in 2019 versus 2001. That's Andy Cardigan. He was chief of staff to President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2006. Andy talked to me about the importance of the chief of staff, how the role has changed, and how much social media has impacted the office of the president. I think that it's important to hear what a chief of staff does because many of the problems that a president owns are because of the chief of staff. So it's appropriate for us to learn that. Right. And now we have, of course, a very different executive and a very different chief of staff. And that is a challenge for democracy. But it's not as big as the challenge of the impact of social media. And this president has used social media, but it wasn't there for others to use earlier. Meaning some other president could have done this before Trump did. That it, he just happened to be at this moment, or I, I, that he... The technology wasn't there. George W. Bush loved to email when he be, was running for president. When he became president, he stopped emailing because we told him he had to. The genie is out of the bottle in terms of social media and the role of the instant communication through so many different platforms now. And it's just a reality. We're losing the discipline of reflection before we speak. And we should be reflecting. I wish the president could do that. He changed it. He got elected because he had the capacity to do it. I don't think he can uh, give up that seduction right now. And we should have known that. I should have known that who we saw running for president was who would be getting as president. So is this now permanent? Or is this, as Vice President Biden argues, this is an anomaly, and that we're we the next president will look more familiar to you. I pray that the next president will look more familiar to me, having served three presidents, <laughs> up close and personal, Reagan, Bush, and Bush. But the reality is, I think the nature of expectations in the public will be that there will be regular and relatively contemporaneous communication from a president. So I don't think the president will have the luxury of taking more deliberative time to respond because I think the public is now going to be saying, wait, we used to get the word right away and now we're waiting. So I think it's going to be very hard to change the expectations in the democracy. And change the role of chief of staff, obviously. You have a chief of staff now who, by the way, I think is still an acting chief of staff, who famously says, let Trump be Trump. My job isn't to do, as uh, you guys have noted, to help give some discipline and some structure. I'm going to defend Mick Mulvaney. The chief of staff responsibility is a relatively new thing in our democracy. President Eisenhower had a chief of staff. That was the first chief of staff. Harry Truman had someone who was close to him, but it was called a secretary. President Eisenhower gave us, quote, a chief of staff. Jimmy Carter didn't really want one, and he made the mistake of not having one until too late. I think the chief of staff's role is very, very important. But the chief of staff cannot change a president. They have to work with a president, and they have to recognize they didn't get elected president, and nobody else did. The president got elected president. So you try to fit the responsibilities to meet the expectations of the occupant of the Oval Office. Andy Card, White House Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2006.
At the top of the hour, you heard a story about President Obama and the raid he oversaw that took out Osama bin Laden 10 years after 9-11. It was a pivotal moment in his presidency, but to be honest, it's not one we talk about as much today. What are we still talking about when it comes to President Obama? Well, the law that took on his name. Obamacare. 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 Kathleen Sebelius served as Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2009 to 2014, and she says health care was always a priority for Barack Obama. When Barack Obama declared for president, one of the things he said is, I want to do a health care bill in my first term. And what I watched unfold was an economic cabinet who felt very strongly that the only thing he should focus on was the economy and jobs. A policy his chief of staff and his felt chief of staff and a lot of people around him. But he made that call and he made it over and over and over again that whatever it took, why not do it now? This was as good as it was going to get, and he intended to go as big as he possibly could. So we had lots of debates that the president really wasn't directly, he was in the room, but it would often be the economic team, laissez-faire, let the markets work, you know, insure three children and two seniors, and let's call it quits, you did something, let's go. And the president would say, how big can we go? How do we do this? And over and over again, including when Scott Brown picked up the Teddy Kennedy seat and was elected in Massachusetts and we lost our 60th vote in the Senate, the president still said, how do we put this back on the table? I want to step out to think about executive power. You've also been a governor. And so that used to be, at least going back to Carter, that was the pathway to the presidency. People wanted executives, people who've done things and had to have the buck stop with them. Now we've had a series of presidents who don't come from that background, whether from the Senate or from private companies. What do you make of that now about the executive? Is it as important to, to have that executive experience now to be president? I think having a governor or a mayor is an important piece of the puzzle. But there is a difference, I would say, also in campaigning and governing. And I think President Obama knew this well. He wasn't running a campaign every day. He was really trying to govern a longer range. What can we get done? I have four years and kind of measure it out and mark it out. If you are running a campaign every day in the battle du jour, if you don't have any vision beyond Friday, that's a pretty tumultuous and pretty unproductive way to govern at any level. Would you argue that that's what we have right now? I would say if this president can see to Friday, that's even a miracle. I, I'm not even sure if he has a 24-hour horizon, and I mean that seriously. I don't, I don't know what the horizon is, but I find that troubling. I, president Obama really was able to say, what can we get done in this period of time? And when it was clear that the Congress was not going to act in a very um, useful fashion once the Democrats lost the House and lost the Senate— he really turned to executive action, and the question was, how much authority do all of you have? So there are some who would say, well, you, that it was the Obama administration then that began this process of more executive authority. Trump is continuing that, and that in this era of hyperpartisanship, nobody's going to get 60 votes ever again in the Senate, that this is how we're going to govern. Do you buy well, that? I think there definitely is a lot of authority built into 
executive offices. And when a law is passed, the agencies write the rules and regs about that law. And those kind of are the implementation tools and define what are the rules and regs, and they can be debated. What is different, I would suggest, is that we were told to look at our authorities and our power. And I sat every day with our general counsel saying, where can we go? What's already there? What this administration, I would argue, is doing is having failed to change the law, they are actually using executive authority to go around the law. A lot of what they're doing, I think, ultimately will be found by a court to be illegal. Yes, it uses executive authority, but I would suggest it's using it to undercut the law because they failed to get rid of the law. Kathleen Sebelius served as President Obama's Secretary of Health and Human Services from 2009 to 2014. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. My next guest walked the halls of the White House from 2005 to 2007, but his relationship with President George W. Bush started more than a decade earlier. Bush is a very, first of all, he's a very normal person, but he's also a, a creature of habit, and his habits are very healthy. That's Karl Rove. He was always a reader. He was always somebody who, as governor and in business beforehand, tried to surround himself with people who would tell him you're not looking too pretty. He liked process. After advising Bush on his gubernatorial and presidential campaigns, Rove became President Bush's senior advisor and deputy chief of staff. He would come early, 6.30 in the morning, but he'd leave at a reasonable time in the afternoon, even though we all knew that he was taking, you know, next day's book of 150 pages of material and a lot of other stuff back up to the treaty room, his private office in the, in the White House. But his message to us was, don't burn yourself out. I'm leaving here at 5 o'clock. No need for you to stay here until 8 or 9 o'clock at night each and every night in order to impress me. I want you to go home, have dinner with your families, and come in fresh tomorrow because we've got important work to do. Now, the course of Bush's presidency was set in motion by one awful, tragic day. But while the 9-11 attacks were unprecedented, the response by Americans was familiar. The country rallied around the president as they had in previous times of national crisis. Within days, Bush's job approval rating rose by almost 40 points to 90%. It's hard to believe that same thing would happen today. When I asked Rove to reflect on this hyperpolarized time we're in, he told me he thinks the country is in a populist moment, a populism ushered in by both the left and the right. And when I asked him where all this populist energy goes, he brought up a president we don't think about these days, but one whom Rove wrote a book about, William McKinley. I hate to dwell on my, my, my favorite election, 1896, but 
we have a period of 25 years of, of, of broken American politics that makes today look like it's a smooth-running machine. And we have a populist moment that emerges with the populists themselves, and it's expressed in a thoroughly populist Democratic presidential nominee. And in comes William McKinley, wins the election by a message of national unity. We're all in this together. We, we Labor and capital will rise or fall together. He says in, a, in dramatic remarks to the first visit of a Republican presidential candidate with Confederate war veterans that if we're ever fight, forced to fight again, and God forbid that we shall, we shall fight as brothers under a common flag. So this message of national unity, basically populism doesn't go away, but it no longer is that dominant characteristic that it was in the 1895, 1896 huh, Joe era. Biden is running as the national unity yeah, candidate, Yeah, I, I thought it was very deliberate, and I thought it was very smart. So for people who say, okay, that was that's nice, but that was a long time ago. That's before social media and cable TV. Unity is impossible now. This idea that we could have a president ever getting to even a 60% approval rating seems laughable. Well, remember, technological change has always been happening. You're right. That was an era before social media, but it was also an era before radio and television. And along came this powerful new uh, means of communication, radio, and and who who uh, took that and turned it into a into a means to create national unity, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, with the with the fireside chats. So, does does social media present a new challenge? Yes, it does. From this perspective, from a fundraising perspective, it provides a way for people to get get financial support by appealing to the to deeply held sharp beliefs, which tend to be ideological and on the fringes. That is a problem, but it also presents an opportunity to unite the country. Can you imagine having a president who is using the Twitter feed in order to? appeal to our greater impulses? Can you imagine a, a different message in the aftermath of, say, Charlottesville or at a moment of national crisis? So yes, it's, it, it is a neutral, it's a neutral means that has been used for not neutral purposes, but can it be used for positive purposes? Yes. So I think about that a lot. I think about the country reacting after 9-11, and there was that traditional rally around the flag and rally around the president. Do you think that would happen if something as horrible as that happened again, that we would do that? Or are we just the distrust that we have in so many of these institutions is preventing that? from? No, I think it would happen. But but you put your finger on it. Uh, It happened in the aftermath of 9-11. But the the, the broken nature of the political parties caused it to begin to pull apart shortly thereafter. I mean, it's within a year we have problems with the congressional action on the authorization for the use of force. Presidential leadership matters to some degree in this. But at the seat of it is the parties are broken and the trust in our institutions of government is low. It, it's low today, but it was, it was, lower, it was low in, two th- in the early 2000s, lower than it had been in, say, the 80s or the, even in the 70s. We went through this terrible problem with Watergate. Institutions began to recover support in the 70s and the 80s, the 90s. But by, by the 2000s, for some reason, we began again to be, feel some distance between uh, Americans and their institutions, and it's only gotten worse. Just if we can put on your strategist hat for a moment, your campaign in 2004 was credited for, I don't know if you'll take the credit, if you like it or don't, for being the the campaign that instituted, one, micro-targeting of 
Right. Obviously, different level of sophistication because it was a long time oh, yeah. ago. You didn't have and all this kind of information. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we were but, lucky. We were lucky to have a hundred pieces of information. Now it's uh, it's common to have eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand pieces of information for per each, voter. Per voter, which is yeah. remarkable. Yeah. But the second was this idea that the key is not persuasion but turnout. Well, that's, so talk to us no, about that look, because that's what it seems like. This campaign is yeah. all about. Trump, these people love him. He knows how to find each and every one of them. He's going to turn them out everywhere. And Democrats just got to get their really committed Trump haters out. And that's how well, the election this is the will great, go. This is the great myth about the 2004 election, that, that it was a base-only election, that all we were focused on is turning out our base. So we erased the gender gap. So about 50% of women voted for Bush. Are women the base of the Republican Party? Latinos, 44% of them voted for Bush. Is that the base of the Republican Party? In battleground states, we got 16% of the African-American vote. Is that the base of the Republican Party? We got the highest percentage of the Jewish vote since Ronald Reagan in 1984 when he took 49 out of 50 states. Is that the base of the Republican Party? So the, the 2004 effort was simultaneously aimed at two things, expanding our turnout because on the other side, we had a vast effort being funded by George Soros through Americans coming together that was clearly aimed at bringing out marginal Democratic voters. So we had to offset that with voter registration and a gigantic get-out-the-vote effort. But the other part of it was looking at all that micro-targeting and finding groups of people who were up for grabs in that election to understand with clarity what was going to move them and then grab them. And particularly to grab not only swing voters, but to grab Democrats who were willing to come across. If the Trump campaign is going to do base only, that base is 38 percent. The people who in 2016 said, I like him, I'm voting for him. It's not even the 46 percent that voted for him because there was about 9 percent who said, I don't like him and I hate her, but I hate her. But uh, my senses are smart enough to figure out that this well, is Well, that's what persuasion. I wanted to ask you, that if, if they do sense that, because this is a president, at least during his presidency, that has seemed almost universally committed to the people who already like him and keeping them engaged. And independent voters are not big fans of the, the president. They voted for Democrats by 12 points or so in 2018. How do you go get those people back when you've spent your presidency not speaking to yeah. them? Well, I, I can't speak for how they are going to do it. But one way is to disqualify, as Obama did, disqualify Mitt Romney in the minds of those vulnerable of those vulnerable swing voters. Another way is to identify things in what you have done or, or more importantly, what you want to do that they find attractive, particularly if that's contrasted with the views and values of, of the person on the other side. Carl Rove, thanks so much for yeah, taking the time to bet. talk to me. Absolutely. Great to be with you, Amy. What is the job? What do you expect of the president? What's the president supposed to do? Now, the Constitution's pretty vague about the job of the president, and as such, most of the rules and norms that presidents follow have been shaped by the men that have come before them. And when you have worked for the president of the United States, it's helpful to be able to take the long view of the office. You seem optimistic about where we are as a country, where the democracy is headed. Well, let me slightly correct your characterization. Okay. <laughs> when I first sat down with Susan Rice, who served as U.S. National Security Advisor for President Obama, I thought she was feeling pretty good about things. And in the long arc of history, she is. But according to Ambassador Rice, the crisis of the moment is that we, and when I say we, I mean the United States of America, are our own worst enemy. The problem, Rice says, lies within. The greatest threat to our national security is our domestic political polarization. 
And I really believe that. And let me explain why. First of all, our ability to project power and our values, our leadership depends on us being cohesive internally, depends on us having a model that we project of responsible democracy that is compelling to others around the world. It requires that, you know, we are all, whether from, you know, the point of view of our our economic growth and strength or our societal fabric, that we are a cohesive, unitary nation. And to the extent that we are not, that we are fighting each other, that our Congress and our executive branch are literally unable to do anything, you know, when the president storms out of a room because like every one of his predecessors in recent memory, he's faced congressional investigations and says, I'm done legislating, I'm done doing anything until this ends. We're in a moment where the dysfunction born of our divisions and polarizations is is at a really uh, significant high. So that's one reason I say that. We're not bringing our game, and we're in a very competitive uh, international climate. Secondly, these domestic divisions are being exploited by our adversaries to weaken us and to pit Americans against each other. What we saw in 2016 with the Russian interference in our elections, which continues to this day, is that the Russians recognize that we are you know, divided along political lines, along racial lines, along ideological lines, along socioeconomic lines. Every time something happens, like a Charlottesville, since we're here, let's talk about that, or a Parkland, or, you know, the synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh. You know, the Russians use their bots on social media to fire up radicals on both sides of those debates. And they don't, they don't have a side. They don't care. They just want us to hate each other and to eat each other alive from within. So we are making ourselves easy prey for our national adversaries because we are not cohesive internally. I also sat down with Carl Rove earlier this week, and we were talking about 9-11. And I'm wondering what you think about if indeed there were another 9-11 kind of experience. How worried are you that this polarization, this division, would mean we wouldn't see a rallying around the flag, a rallying around the president like we saw back then? I'm deeply worried. It's already happened. Look at what happened in Benghazi. Benghazi was a terrorist attack. We lost four Americans. It became a political football. It wasn't that all Americans rallied in concern by the horror of losing our ambassador and three others. That got all lost in a very dishonest, divisive, political show around a national tragedy. We lost American service members in Niger in a counterterrorism mission. And again, their loss was polarizing and politicized in a way that it never should be. Now, it wasn't on the same scale, but it's, it's indicative, in my judgment, of the fact that these tragedies are no longer viewed as moments where the nation comes together. They are now opportunities for political opponents to, to toss mud on one another. Um, last question for you, since we are here talking about the presidency. You've served with two Democratic presidents. And the thing that I've been asking everyone who has worked in administration is your perspective on how the presidency has changed that person who came in from being a candidate to being a president, and how that person then changed the presidency. It seems as if both of those things happen to any person who takes that job. And if you have any insights or perspectives on what you saw either of President Clinton or President Obama 
I think it's so interesting because each, you know, each individual is so different and they, what they bring to the presidency, what they, meaning the knowledge, the experience, the background, and who they are when they're done is a fascinating study. Let me talk about my more recent experience with President Obama. I think many people didn't really know Barack Obama before he was in the White House, didn't know the power of his intellect, his deep capacity to learn and to to delve very much in depth into the issues of the day. I don't think they fully understood that he had a temperament which was very genuinely quite even. And so to some extent, I think people started to see President Obama for who he was. Many of his characteristics were manifest well before he became president. And I had the opportunity to see him before, during, and and obviously after. But I think uh, the weight of the presidency, the the pressure of uh, decision-making, and the inevitability of the unexpected is something that makes even a very capable and, and disciplined president even more disciplined. And, and that's what I saw out of President Obama. I mean, it's really hard when you are in that office and you're responsible for the deaths of Americans overseas and, and, and conveying to the families of lost servicemen, you know, condolences. And when you, when everything that happens weighs on you enormously, how do you maintain a perspective and an optimism? And one of the things I admired most about President Obama is that even in the midst of all of that and in the heaviest times, he could still see the big picture. And one of the things he often reminded us and he reminded the public that I think is very powerful is if if you could pick any time in human history to be born and you didn't know where you were going to be born, what socioeconomic circumstances you were going to be born into, what your sex or gender would be, what your race would be, your religion, if it was just a crapshoot, you would want to be born in this moment because the odds of you having a future that's hopeful uh, is so much better, where you know levels of poverty are reduced, where rights of women are you know, much enhanced globally, you know, where there is greater opportunity even in the midst of all the challenges we've been talking about here today than you know, ever before in human history. And, you know, that perspective is a powerful one, is in moments when everything seems like it's going off the rails. uh, And mind you, this was uh, two or three years ago, we were having these conversations. Nonetheless, I think the message is that we have made human progress. And that progress is measurable, and it's substantial. And, you know, we are poised to make more progress uh, domestically and internationally if we don't stand in our own way. Ambassador Rice, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for us today. A special thanks to the folks here at the University of Virginia's Miller Center for hosting us this week and giving me the opportunity to get some needed perspective about politics and the presidency. Each presidency lasts a short amount of time, but the legacy of a president stretches on forever. Have a thought on our show? Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is at The Takeaway. Another thing, get out your calendar. You're invited to join us for a special live broadcast of Politics with Amy Walter from WNYC's The Green Space. We'll be celebrating the one-year anniversary of my show and, of course, talking politics, specifically what to do about the Electoral College. 
It's Friday, May 31st at 9 a.m. Tickets are free, but you need to RSVP at WNYC.org slash the green space. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. This podcast is made by the following people. Lydia Jean Cott is our associate producer. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator. Jay Cowett is our director and theme music composer. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. And the Takeaways executive producer is Ellen Frankman. Frankman.